Ledger is a writing podcast and the answer to the dramatic question of will you start writing that thing you've always dreamed of writing? I'm your host, Austin Wilson, and I couldn't be happier to have you with me. Uh, today's guest is Daniel Joshua Rubin. He's a screenwriter, TV writer, new media writer, uh, and a nonfiction author, specifically of the book 27 Essential Principles of Story, which is out now from Workman Publishing. I found it last month, and it quickly became uh, one of my favorite writing books, one that's not focused on uh, bre- breaking creativity down into mechanical and, and really, I mean, that we mean boring right there. That's what we mean. Uh, breaking it down into mechanical actions. Uh, but what it does is explain how and why thinking about the craft of storytelling with purpose and specificity is going to help you tell better stories. And just to put it bluntly, I freaking love this book. I really do. As soon as I got about halfway into it, I knew I probably needed to talk to Daniel and reached out to him. And as you can tell from listening to this, it worked out. We talk about some of the blurbs on the book that that caught my eye and, and got me to pick it up in the first place. We also talk about what it's like to write in a television writer's room. He's the first person that I've gotten a chance to talk to who has had that experience. Uh, we also talk about what writing something that ultimately doesn't get published or, or, or in his case, picked up for, for TV, uh, what that feels like and and how to move on from it. Uh, we, we even talk about martial arts and, and how that plays into to writing and, and uh, Daniel's mindset about how he works on the things that he, he does and, and how you can also apply some of those same things. I told you February is going to be a busy month for me. This is my second interview recorded so far this month. Uh, And make sure you check out the one that I did before this with Bella Poynton. She's a playwright, director, and theater scholar. That episode's up on all podcast platforms, just like the one that you're listening to right now. And I have another interview coming this month after this chat with Daniel Joshua Rubin. So, like I said, busy month. Uh, As always, visit my site, austinrwilson.com, to check out some of my work, my publishing credits. I have two stories that just got published uh, at the beginning of February in a book called Love Me, Love Me Not, out from Black Hair Press. They are 100 words long, as are the rest of the stories in the book, and they are all about love, but dark love. So check that out. It's on Amazon. You can also find a link on my website and probably in the show notes wherever you're listening to this. Follow me on social media everywhere at Austin R. Wilson. Um, I also have a Twitter account, Ledger underscore books. And recently I've been posting work on Medium. Uh, My name there is also Austin R. Wilson. Uh, And I've also been publishing at medium.com slash S-H-I-B-B-O-I-E-T-H. It is the word shibboleth where the L is replaced with an I. Why would I do this, you ask? That's right. Uh, Some villain out there has shibboleth, medium.com slash shibboleth, already taken, and they're doing nothing with it. It's completely empty. So I had to replace the L with an I. I'm not happy about it, but there it is. So I've got some shibboleth stories up on there. And more will be coming. It's a passion project of mine that's sort of x files kind of cryptid, weird UFO government conspiracy stuff. I have a ton of fun with it. It's all me, written. There's illustrations. There's all kinds of fun stuff on there, so go check that out as well. I'll link that. All the other places I link everything here. And please, if you like the show, give a thought to subscribing, to rating it, to reviewing it. 
but especially telling someone else about it. I, I really, really, really appreciate your time and listening to the show, and I would love to hear from you and to, for you to share the show with someone else that you would you think would like it. You can tweet me, email me. There's a, there's a contact page on my website. I really like having people listen to the, the chats. So, yeah, writing, writing rules. We should all enjoy it together. But for now, here's my chat with Daniel Joshua Rubin. I love reading about writing and, and studying the craft. I want to always be learning. And and I hadn't seen your book before. You know, you get kind of used to seeing the same things over and over and over again. And I hadn't seen yours, so I won't lie. The name Tracy Letts, it, that caught my eye. And I read what, tra- I. it's weird to feel susceptible to blurbs because I I work in marketing when I'm not, you know, writing fiction. And there's almost that part of me that's like, I'm immune to this marketing stuff, but I'm not. Um, and thank, thankfully, because I was like, well, one, I respect the hell out of what Tracy Letts does. So seeing him recommend your book, I was like, okay. I flipped through it and some stuff jumped out at me. In all honesty, in my experience with that kind of marketing, I know blurbs can be full of crap because the person just wants a little extra, you know, oh, you know, I've been, I've had my, you know, like Dan Rubin recommends this book. So he's Dan Rubin's the author of 27. It's all kinds of shady, but I can't say like we're friends, but I see him. And one time I finally went up to him and I said, and we talked a ton about plays and stuff. And I went up to him and I said, Hey, Tracy, I think there's become a lot of academic crap and jargon that's kind of infected the way writing is taught. And Tracy's favorite word about writing is, does it have blood? He'll ask, like, does the writing have blood? And so I felt like he's, and I always like his plays and, and we're, and I like him and I like the way he, he really, August Osage County was a smash hit, you know, and to overcome that kind of success is not always the easiest thing. So I've always had a lot of respect for him. He sent this beautiful quote uh, and then he, and the quote is really, it's, it's, yeah, it's not the run of the mill. You know, he's like, he, he put some thought into it. So it was, a, it was, and it, it was a big help. It was a huge, and the editor went crazy. The publisher was like, oh my God, this is so great. Oh, it's a, so I saw the, I saw that blurb and kind of just coincidentally, more recently, I have been super, super into playwriting. Oh yeah. Um, I literally just interviewed a playwright last week. That interview's up now. It's with Bella Poynton. I had been reading, I read Neil Simon's uh, autobiography and oh, yeah. I started reading all these plays and I had been already interested in Tracy Letts and that led me to Steppenwolf. Yeah. Um, so I like, I'm literally there. It's sitting right next to the, uh, to the computer. I'm reading the, the history of Steppenwolf as told by the, the people who, who created it and all the actors and stuff. And then seeing his name on your book is one of the reasons why I grabbed it. However, awesome. yeah. After I opened it, your principles are the thing that that hit me. And I got super, super into how you were telling the 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 principles and, and talking about them. The really big thing about that let's blurb is that I think he nails one of the big themes of your entire book. There's I think it has two parts, and I'll get to the second part sure, later sure. on in the combo. But the first part, he talks about how it's not a how-to, but it's a here's why. That really is how the book feels. Yeah. It's it's not telling you how to do things, but here's why these things that you should do 
to create certain storylines work. And I really want the, one of the, my big first questions was about the editing process of this book. Oh. I haven't had the chance to talk to someone who's written a book like this. And it's so funny because it's, it's kind of the opposite of the stuff that you're talking about in the book, because it's, you're not presenting a story or at least not as straightforward as you're talking about in the, in the book. So Let's talk about the editing process, sure. about putting this book together, like how long it took you to pull oh. these themes into focus and make it feel as cohesive as it did. Sure. Okay. A couple of things. The first, well, the editing process, and then I guess I could talk about why I even started writing the book, but the, the originally the book was a hundred, like 50 super fast, almost like a dictionary, like kind of a list of principles. And the editor was like, these are too spare. And we want, we'd rather you pick a fewer amount of principles and dig deep into them. So I really started looking at them and I started realizing this is always the case. You can always cut, you know, like I find, and I, I, I started restructuring it and realizing that I could easily get like five principles into one, you know, sort of, um, you know, like exceed expectations really deals with things about genre and about yeah. knowing what you're trying to achieve. But I have to say the editing process, I've never went through the, I, this is my first book that I've written. My career has been playwriting TV, um, like new media, but it was hard, man. It was really, yeah. really hard because I had my book and then they wanted me to, to, basically you don't sell a book. I didn't even know about this. You sell a book proposal. So the agent was like, hey, I'm glad you have a book, but who's gonna buy it? you know, what other books are like it? You know, why do you think it's going to, why does the world need it? And I'm like, the world doesn't need anything. There's like 2000 <laughs> books on story. So I'm going to, so Bob Dylan has a great quote where Bob Dylan said, the world doesn't need any more songs, but it always needs a pure heart. So I kind of yeah. felt like, oh, that's cool. I, I think that my, that from that angle, it's legit. But I have to say the first time I gave my draft to this editor, her name's Margot Herrera. She's a brilliant woman. She was at, workman publishing for like 30 years and the beating she put on me was, 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 it was, it was unseemly. I mean, it was <laughs> just, I'm not kidding. I, I thought I'm going to yeah. quit. I, I like, you know, when you get like a seven on a math test when you're in like seventh grade, it just was marked up everywhere. And I was yeah. raised to be like a creative writer and a funny guy. And I didn't know a lot about grammar. And to this day, I think I have decent grammar but I can't really articulate exactly why. So, so that was horrific, but I'll tell you one of the craziest things real fast is what happened is Workman Publishing, I didn't realize it was in the process of getting acquired, which I didn't know. So Margot, actually my editor left the project in the middle and that, and I had talked to you a little bit before about accepting responsibility and I, I was so angry. I'm like, oh my God, I'm gonna lose my editor. I can't build this relationship again with somebody else. And I felt a ton of pressure. I had quit a really good job. I've never had a day job in my life, but I had a great job. I was telling you, running the marketing for this agricultural risk management company. And I just couldn't believe I was getting a paycheck every week. And I gave that up to write this book for, believe me, I didn't get like Oprah Winfrey money. <laughs> and so, so anyway, so she quit the project 
And then I sent her this, I was so angry, but I sent her a beautiful letter and I said, I totally understand whatever, wherever you go in life, I'm so grateful for what you did for my book. And she sends me a letter back saying, I actually want to keep your book, even though I'm not working for the company anymore. And I was like, man, extreme ownership. Thank you, Jocko. So, um, so then what happened was she had so much other work. This was really an incredible experience. I hope to God it doesn't come off as bragging, but it was incredible where she couldn't get me my edits until about 18 days before the book was really due. And I only had at that point like a le- like nine chapters done. So basically I had to write one chapter a day ready to go in for 18 straight days. And I laid on the floor and I swear I was going to quit. I said, I can't do this anymore. There's no way. And I, I, I sound like a cult follower, but I was listening to a video by Jocko, who's his Navy SEAL commander. And what he said is when you fight and you go to war, if you shoot all your bullets and you still didn't win, get out your knife and get out your knife. And if you, they take your knife, beat them with your fists. And if they still beat you, then die like a man. And I went, okay, I got to think about this because I was ready to quit. I was ready to, yeah. I, I was ready to call my agent. I had my speech ready to go. I was going to tell my wife, I was going to beg for my job, my day job back. And then I just said, you know what? I'm not, the worst thing I could do is quit. I'll, if I write the worst book ever written, fine. And I, I swear to you, and this is why I don't yell too much at my students about wait until the last minute. I just went into some bizarre heightened state and I blasted, I had Pearl Jam and I had this one song by, by uh, Ronnie James Dio called Stargazer. I must've played it 9 billion times. And the, this is the greatest thing in the world about being in Chicago. I was in an office building and I, Chicago, and there is a truth to the Midwest friendliness. I'm from New York, but I lived in LA for 11 years. And I was in an office building with accountants, with psychiatrists and with a design studio and I'm cranking Dio and I'm writing and I'm singing along and I have the song on repeat and the attitude of everyone in the building, I swear to God was, Oh, that guy's, that guy's trying to write a book, leave him alone. He'll Not, be okay. Yeah. No one knocking on the door. You better shut that music. And, and I swear I wrote for 12 hours a day, 18 straight days and got it into a shape where one more, you know, some cleanup. And so the editing process was, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. It was horrific and also the best time of my life. So it was insane. So was there anything that you had done previously? Because I know you've written for TV, stage. Yeah. You've done some new media stuff like you mentioned. Had any of that prepared you for this at no, all? Nothing? Not not for the – there's something about all those words. I mean I think I have like 110,000 words. It's a 400-page. It's a monster textbook. And it was just the massive scope of it. Like even a 100 – 10 page screenplay didn't feel like, or, you know, when I write a sitcom, you write a 30 page, this was a monster. And I felt in all honesty, I didn't feel like it was my book. Again, I was telling you before that, like, I'm feeling a little spiritual in my old age where I didn't think these principles up. They've been around since Aristotle. Mm -hmm. I'm just, the only thing I take a lot of pride in is I think I've articulated them clearly and in plain English and without obnoxious jargon and without my ego. The the word you must appear in that book 8 billion times for it's aimed at the reader. And it's re, I tried to create a relationship between the reader and the greatest writers of all time. And to show you, this is how Shakespeare did it. This is how South Park did it. And to try to 
focus on objective facts, but I'm getting away from the question as I always do. No, I I think that that matches up perfectly. And I, I was going to, you know, go further on in the conversation before I hit the, I think the other theme is, but I think you sort of go into it right there, which is the way you approach the principles and the, the way you lay them out. Um, specifically you're, you start talking about motivating fierce antagonists. That's one of the, Uh that's one of the principles. And that's where the other, what I thought of as like the big second part of the theme for your book shows up. And you talk about how without fierce antagonists, whether they're a person or, you know, uh, an act of God or the weather or whatever, if you don't have fierce antagonists, you are just writing some shit that happens. (laughs) Yeah. You're not writing a story. And let me tell you, I like, I was taking notes. As I read your book, uh, underlining stuff, I, I really wanted to do the work because I love learning and and yeah. bettering my craft. And when I got to that part, I was like, oh, damn, that hurts. Because <laughs> I immediately thought of the stories where I was like, OK, yeah, this story didn't work because I was just writing some shit that was happening. I, I wasn't. Right. I wasn't giving a fierce antagonist or or layering my conflict or provoking dilemma, like doing all your stuff. Like even if you don't do every principle, that theme of don't just write some shit that happens. And it's, yeah, that was the other really big, big thing for me in the book that hit is you have to be telling a story and the story can't just be, I went on a walk. (laughs) No, I, I feel that really strongly. And it's funny because I've been, I'm really passionate about, I love experimental work. I love Beckett and, and I think Thornton Wilder's Our Town is like the greatest play ever written. And to be honest, I don't know how he structured it and I don't want to know because I want it to just be this. So, so I've definitely found that if you're a, a, a true genius and you need unique structures to express your vision, that's great. Yep. If you are an experimental personality and you just care more about like poetry and raw feeling, more power to you. This is old school, fastball down the middle, proudly gather around kids. I'm telling a tale and and make it interesting. And I can tell you in my entire career of being a writer and of working with other writers, my friends who are writers as a teacher, I've literally never seen a time when the, and, and again, I'm not trying to sell my book. It's just a God's honest truth. I have never seen one single time where the principles didn't make a story better, yep. more authentic. But I have seen, I just saw one where a play absolutely flopped, big, big money play. And I was looking at it going, you, you didn't even have like a, a strong beginning. Yeah. Like you, you didn't really drop a hammer. You didn't have an exciting incident. You, you make these mistakes, you fail. Yeah. And, and honestly, in all likelihood, like whoever's, re- if you're a writer and you're out there listening to this, like this might sound harsh, in all likelihood, you're not a genius just, <laughs> right. just because statistically they are so rare. Like Donna Tart is not the norm. You do not right. just emerge as, as this perfect, like prose stylist. That is not the norm. Yeah. All, there are a lot of writers who are really good or great. Like there's all these different layers, but the geniuses are so, so, so rare. And I think this is the thing that I struggled with that partially that's, this is why I still feel drawn to books like yours and and really want to try and learn more is that for a long time, I thought that I was going to demystify the process for myself. Mm -hmm. And that's a, I think that's a pretty common fear and seeing you talk about it, like you talk about it in the book about, 
we want to avoid rigid creativity stifling rules. Oh, yes. And that was a huge drawing point for me because I'm like, okay, this guy understands that that part of my brain that's like, but I'm an artist, but also is someone who's like, okay, let's make you a better writer. Yes. And by any chance, you heard of a book called Flow. It's by this, he's a University of Chicago psychiatrist. I think he passed away recently named Mihaly Csikszent Mihaly. And Mm -hmm. he's got like no values in his, no vowels in his name. But that book is really important to my book because what he said, look, by far the most important thing, and I'm sure you and I agree on this, is to get in a heightened state, to be in the zone, to write for 10 straight hours like Arthur Miller wrote when he wrote the first act of Death of a Salesman in one legendary night in his in his like shack in the woods. <laughs> and without a doubt, there's a constant interplay between your logical brain making structural decisions and just raw inspiration that none of us know exactly where it comes from. But what the f- book Flow really sold to me in a big way of why I embraced this method is... He said in that book that to achieve the flow state, you know, where hours pass in what feels like minutes, you have to know what you're trying to do. So, you know, if you're playing chess, you know what, how the rules are. And what I find is that if I just write, I, I don't always, it's so overwhelming. There's so many millions of choices. And if, but if I sit down and write and I know that, you know, this character needs money from this character. And I, and I think, and I pace, and I think, how can he try to get this money in the most unique, interesting way I can? And how can this guy's response be totally unpredictable? And then you're trying to solve problems. And, and if your spark of inspiration can come within those kind of, you know, like, what is it, the, the tracks or the parameters or the ring or whatever you want to call it, that to me is the sweet spot, you know? Oh, oh yeah. And, and that flow state... Yeah. Um, I have heard of it. I hadn't heard yeah. of that book, but weirdly I, I watch mixed martial arts, uh, oh. and some of the, the fighters talk about achieving that flow state. Uh, one of my favorite fighters, Israel Adesanya, he talks about oh, yeah. getting into that flow state and where your body just does the thing that it's been trained over and over to do. And yeah, that's what I, you want when you sit down to write. <laughs> Yeah, and I can't tell you how now I, I now you're going to have trouble shutting me up, but I can't tell you how important martial arts is to this book and to this method of writing because I studied martial arts for 5 years and I and for me it was more about learning how to live, learning how to get deal with anxiety, deal with stress, dealing with anger, and it was such a I'm not a I'm a antsy guy and like I'm not a big meditator. So martial arts let me get it out. I'm not training right now. So I'm not claiming I'm Bruce Lee, but like martial arts is this thing where you, you say to someone, put on this white belt and learn, just, just learn like four things. Just learn to literally, you know, block, kick, strike. And then when you do that, we're going to invite your family. We're going to change your belt. We're going to light some candles and we're going to make you feel great. And then they say, okay, now you're an orange belt. We're going to teach you how to move two steps. And all of a sudden, you know, after like five years, you're like, holy man, I string all this together. I know how to breathe and how to stand and how to punch and how to kick. You're like, I'm really good at this. And it's, yeah. and you drill it relentlessly because you're never per- perfect. You're just always trying to get a little. And that is such a huge part. I got to tell you, the 
I, I'm not a fan of him anymore because he dis, he he broke my heart in a way. But I was a huge Conor McGregor fan before oh, he gosh, was famous, yeah. and I thought he's just a blue collar kid, came from welfare, built himself up to be. But whenever he would talk about the fundamentals of his craft, and that that actually, I was totally out of writing, and I was doing marketing, and I got the bug to write again. And I started thinking, I'm going to build a journal of just first principles of writing, things that no one, as much as possible, no one could argue with. Just like in, in fighting, standing correctly so no one can just easily shove you is, is just right. It's just yep. the right, you know, but sometimes you have to be fluid and move when, when force comes at you. So I started thinking, how can I build the martial arts book of writing? Like, it's like the martial art of writing. And I can't tell you, it's funny, I was just... Pardon my rambling. I got to kind of, I don't, no, I don't think I've, <laughs> thank you. But I, Keep I it coming. okay. But what's so great about, right. I was thinking about this just the other day to tell my class um, is I'm teaching Loyola is in, in a martial arts dojo, there's a part of you that realizes I'm not really going to get hurt because this is yeah. a dojo and they're not sadists. God willing, you're in the right, in a, in a good dojo. But what would happen at my school was at times the older veteran guys would put an ass whipping on you yeah. and they, you know, they wouldn't injure you, but they'd give yeah. you a, a knock around. You get black and blue, you get tackled. You get, I mean, you feel, and you, it's, and their energy is the same as it would be if they were fighting an invader. And so, but that reminded me of writing because why the principles work and why they're not just sad, like formulaic paint by numbers crap is that if I, I was, I was teaching Nemo the other day in my class and like it, Nemo was one of my favorite movies and it, they basically say to you, look at this cute little fish and he's got a new home and it's by the drop off and it's, he's a funny guy and he's nervous and look at him playing with his wife is in that moment, it, just like in martial arts, when someone's beating you up, you, you can't, you, in that split second, you can't say, but I'm just in a dojo and this isn't really real. No, at that second, it feels real. And yep. our sensei used to say, give them an experience when to the, the older belts, to the younger belts, they give them an experience. And to me, that's the essence of great writing. Give them an experience and commit so firmly to the choices you make. Like you can't help but watch Marlon and feel happy for a second. And then all of a sudden he pops out of his anemone and the whole neighborhood is gone. And he turns around, there's a barracuda about to eat his wife and family. But so, you know what I mean? They pull you, pull you, pull you, and then boom, send you back. So, so yeah, that's why I'm such a fan of these principles. They combined with emotion, they, they just work. Well, yeah. And, and like you said, you know, comparing it to martial arts, the, the right stance makes it easier for you to, to hold your ground and, and confront, uh, anything. And if you are going to begin your story with an inciting incident, drop the hammer, like you say in your book, mm -hmm. that is pretty, it's like not guaranteed to make the beginning of your story, grab someone, but it is really, really, really close to guaranteeing it. Yeah. And it's a fun and, and right away you get out of the gate. And if you look at that principle, you, you, you basically, you set up a, a moment and then you, you, you actualize the moment. Solving that problem is, is really fun. Number one makes you get out of the gate knowing exactly what to do. But the greatest thing about it is, you know, I was thinking about the Godfather and essentially the yeah. Godfather is 20 minutes of this wedding of his daughter on, on the, on the day of his daughter's wedding where everybody's asking him for favors. And it, to me, it's just the audience. I mean, the writer is saying, 
See this guy? See this guy? He's the most powerful guy you've ever seen. He's got, you know, politicians at his fingertips. He's got other mobsters. He, he doesn't, he's not afraid of the FBI. This is the most powerful man in the world. And then the next thing they do is Salazzo comes in and threatens him. Yep. And boom. So, but what my point is like, you would never watch Nemo and The Godfather and think those movies have the exact same beginning, you know, like right. setting up and dropping out. So the infinite, yeah, options. That's the other thing that I think, and that's connected, I think, with that fear of, of losing the, the, the mystifying nature of storytelling. Right. If it, if you say every story starts with an inciting incident and mm-hmm. then you elevate the, if you do all these things, yeah you're going to write the same story that everyone else has written. And that's not even close to being true, but they're that part of my brain that I fought for, you know, however many years to, to get past the idea. Like I'm not going to demystify this. I'm going to figure out how to deepen it. That's, that's exactly how I see it. And I'm very, very sensitive. You talked about before reading Neil Simon's biography. I know Neil Simon, another one of my favorite playwrights, August Wilson, they were fanatic about not knowing anything about where they were going, just writing. But for me, I've I've read pretty much all their plays. They are just so good at doing this stuff. They're just doing it as they write, like organically and naturally. They're making decisions as quickly as possible. So even those guys you know, it's, it's, in, it's like in their DNA and, and they do these things. They just kind of get there a different route. See, I, and I think Neil Simon is probably one of the ones where it's like, all right, you're a genius. You're a, you're on this other level where he can be like, I just start writing. And I think probably preternaturally his brain is just like inciting incident yeah. <laughs> and he doesn't even know that he's doing it. Right. And I, it's very obvious to me that I have to work harder than that because I can't just sit down and, and write and and just immediately start doing this thing that falls into place. And eventually I got to a point where I was like, okay, I accept that. Now I'm going to make it myself better. <laughs> right. You, you know, I do. It's funny. I have to tell you, my original title of my book was called Story Master and it had yeah. three parts. And one part was self-knowledge, know yourself. One was master the principles and one was about executing them. And I, they were like, that's too big a book. It's let's just focus on the middle one. But I do think that this is just my own opinion. I have no research on this. I don't think it could be research, but like my, my gut tells me that talent is more common than we think, but a healthy attitude with your creativity, like Neil Simon, August Wilson, they surely had a part of them that was a hundred percent convinced they were going to get there, you know, that, and, and guys like me, and I don't know if you're the same way, but like my inner critic is just a nasty character. And I do think that that part is, I'm hoping this work helps people overcome that. So you, you, you know, just work on dropping the hammer, work on, you know, making the middle, build intention, you know, solve a problem. You're always solving a problem. And then your critic doesn't really have too much of a chance to, to get at you because you're always, it, I, it, to equate it to a football game, another sport, but it's just, just get three yards, just move the ball yeah. up for, up the field. See, I would actually love to read those other portions of the book. I'm working because on <laughs> my, Let me know. Okay. Cause I, I'm excited yeah. uh, because my inner critic as well ha- has always ha- been, vicious enough that I had to use energy to, to fight it, fight it off. 
And anytime I find someone who, who kind of gives me a, another little foothold in, in defeating it, I saw Bruce Springsteen say oh. uh, one time, you have to believe that you are the best yes. and that you suck. Oh, <laughs> you, you have to hold both of those right. contradictory pieces of information in your head in order to do interesting work. Because like you said, you have to have some part of you that's like, all right, I'm going to get there because I believe in myself, yeah. but I could be better. Right. And he has a great line too, that I think is a good compliment to the quote you have, but it's something in the ballpark of your best idea is always a, a microscopic you know, ultra millimeter away from your worst idea. So yeah. like, yeah, when he had to do born to run in his biography and he talked about how he couldn't release it and he thought it was terrible. And if you really look at the lyrics of like born to run and, you know, um, and jungle land, like they're an inch away from being ridiculously over the top. And before, oh. yeah. Yeah. So, so have that mindset of going for it and swinging for the fences and what's going to happen. The worst that happens is you write a bad draft and no one sees it. You know I mean? Yep. So well, it's funny you said that, uh, cause that's kind of tied into the next question. Okay. Um, so recently I, I really like this podcast that the writers guild East puts on okay. writers guild of America East. Yeah. Um, recently they interviewed Tony Gilroy. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, I got, I studied with his dad, Frank Gilroy at grad school. <laughs> Just I'm very jealous. <laughs> he was a good guy. Tony Gilroy is like yeah, one of my North stars. Success. I just, sure. I love how he thinks about story and how he, how he writes. And, uh, in that interview, he said, uh, 80% of the shit I ever wrote never got made. Right. Best stuff I ever, best stuff I ever wrote never got made. Right. Oh, he, wow. And right. And the first thing I thought of was, I was like, dude, you wrote and directed Michael Clayton. And that movie is perfect. <laughs> in my yeah, opinion, yeah, obviously. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk about that with you specifically. Sure. The, the length of time that you've been writing, uh -huh. you know, you've written in all these different formats and, and genres. Um, but in the book, you mention writing a uh, rodeo beer vendor pitch. Oh, yeah. That you almost sold to Comedy Central, uh -huh. but you didn't. Yeah, hard And I, that, that entire situation, when you write something that doesn't get accepted, but comes close to getting accepted, that is part of, my, my guess is, plays into one of the other version, the other parts of the book that you're writing. L let's talk about sure. how you how you move forward and when you truly say this didn't work for something. This didn't work for something that's out of my control. Yeah. And move I, to another piece of writing. I got to tell you, my unique experience is I was kind of successful at a very young age where I got into the Yale School of Drama and I was one of the youngest playwrights like ever to get in. I was like 20. I just turned 22. And the truth is, I didn't have a ton of life experience to be, a, you know, be a writer is a big deal. And I was really at a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress. And Yale was a super competitive, tough place to write. And then I got to LA. And for me, my, I hope I'm going to answer, get into this question in a, in a meaningful way. But for me, when I was in LA and I would have success and then I wouldn't have success. So, so one thing I do want to say is if you have to be really strong and solid in your own identity, you have to have a healthy relationship with your ego and your creativity and dealing with the knocks and hits you take in, in as a professional writer are really, really hard. And it's kind of embarrassing to admit or something I'm becoming proud of though is I did. I came to a point where I identified 
that I didn't think my energy was at the level of like, like using martial arts. Like it was like a lower belt energy. It was nervous. It was begging for attention. And in all honesty, I'm convinced I lost that deal in the last minute because something about me, and I really believe this, didn't have the level of confidence necessary to convince like Comedy Central that I could carry a show. So I actually lost out to Reno 911. But what actually, this you know, this is how old I am. But what happened was I was actually out of work. I got a job on a show. I thought I was a big shot. I bought a nice car. We had a nice house. My daughter was in private school, ran up the bills. And we, I all of a sudden didn't, the show I was on got canceled. And I was like, had no prospects for another show. So I got a job working as a beer vendor at the national, at the professional bull riders finals in Las Vegas. And my friend who ran the beer room said to me, you won't believe how much money you make. You cannot believe how much these cowboys make. And I, I actually, I don't want to drag you too far into that story, but I, I became a beer vendor and I got on my high horse where I thought I'm better than this. I'm not really a beer vendor. And I remember when I only sold the first night, like $20 worth. I was the worst beer vendor in the history of the world. And then that night I was going home and I went, you're an arrogant prick. I said, who do you, <laughs> you know, who do you think you are that you're not, a, you're a beer vendor. I was like, I was using vulgarities, but I'm like, you're a beer sure. vendor, Biatch. You, you vend beer for money. You are as much a beer vendor as anyone who's ever vended beer. So shut your ass. And I decided I was going to win the beer vendor of the night contest. You know, that's what that story was about. So, and the guy who was running the beer room was an ex mob, like low level mobster wise guy who actually passed out in the street drunk like 30 years ago, died, was put in a drawer and was medically, he's like in some kind of textbook where he's the, one of the most documented people to go from being pronounced dead to waking up. He literally woke up in the morgue and we called him dead Dom, Dom Dominic Solicito. He's still my good friend. And he would, so he, he literally got kind of touched by grace. He became an AA counselor. He made amends with everybody. So I wrote this show about this neurotic Jewish TV writer vending beer and realizing he needed to be in this world with this guy, dead Dom and, and get away from Hollywood. So we tried to sell that show. I, oh, I wrote a short story about it, sold it to National Lampoon, and National Lampoon turned it into it. We developed it into a sitcom. And for six weeks, we went toe-to-toe with what I would find out later was Reno 911. But every week, it was like, we're going to tell you Friday night. And my people were sending them gift baskets and fruit baskets and oh, sure. unbelievable, the war and I didn't get it. And then um, I ran in at a party. I ran into a guy who was the first lead actor in any play I ever did at a small theater in Chicago. And his wife says, why do I know you? I know the name Daniel Rubin. I said, I have no idea. She said, well, I'm a, an executive at Comedy Central. And I said, oh, I just wrote something called The Beer Man. And she, she goes, oh, oh, I'm, I'm, oh. And she like, it was like, it was like someone had died. I'm like, what's wrong? And she goes, well, I, if it makes you feel better, I just want you to know that you came as close as you could possibly come to getting a TV show on the air and not getting it. You're like, that makes like, me feel worse. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a mixed bag. I mean, I, I felt like, wow, interesting. But you know, it's funny. I ended up actually liking that. But but the bottom line is I felt like, I think to answer your question, I hope I didn't get too far away from it, but I think I know the story was authentic. 
I know yeah. the issues we were exploring were legit. I knew the characters were crazy. One guy was covered in pornographic tattoos. You know, one was <laughs> just a single mom. And it was just an interesting world. It was also a hard world to capture, like in media, you know, like yeah. what the set would be and, and to capture the, like when you're in the middle of like carrying like 60 beers and ice water up a hundred stairs, you know, with grumpy, angry cowboys yelling at you, it, it's an event. So maybe it should have been a movie. But anyway, I guess my bottom line is to answer your question is, I really think what the only way to survive the defeat and setbacks and rejection is if you know your own worth, if you know what you're writing is, is well-crafted, if you know it's, it's true to who you are. And, and August Wilson has a great line where he says, you're entitled to the work, not the reward. And that always made me really happy. In fact, I have a screenplay out right now that I know is by far the best thing I've ever written. And in all honesty, like I'm very much at peace with, I've had to listen to some of the stupidest responses. I just, you can't even believe it. I've met a couple of producers and I'm like, you just don't even. So I've never felt like that before. I was always begging for attention. And I, I, I'm, I can't help believing that it's funny. Gil, Tony Gilroy would know way better than I would. But in my, my experience, my best stuff has moved my career forward. Even if it's just someone liking it and wanting to talk about another project. But see, I think, well, that quote by August Wilson, that's going to stick with me. Yeah. It's because a great quote. I, very similar situation for me. I'm pitching my first graphic novel to publishers and yeah. I get close in a couple times. And the one time that I felt like it was going to maybe end up at the place that I thought it should end up, it didn't. And I held on to that almost that exact same feeling for a while that I was the per like something about me, my energy, yeah. where I was had pushed the the lever or, you know, like tilted right. the scales against me. And I don't know. I think I go back and forth now. I think there are some days where I believe that. And then I think there are other days where I think, no, actually, you know, I, I think if it had ended up there, I might have learned the wrong lessons. and the the writing that I did after that and the the stuff that I focused on after that with myself, with my work, outside of my work, the lessons that I learned from not getting it published there. Um, I mean, later on, you know, I learned all kinds of things about, you know, why maybe that publisher hadn't worked for me. But yeah, I the the idea that I would have learned to 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 act a certain way rather than I honestly, the, the just no bullshit. The thing I think yeah, yeah. I would have learned, the thing I think I would have learned is that I should just kiss everybody's ass. <laughs> and I'm kind of glad it didn't work out <laughs> because I, I think I would have, I think I would have taken that and I think it would have negatively affected me, but that's, that's, you know, my own unique situation. No, there's no doubt about it. And I, I do think though, to some degree, TV is a different beast in that I yeah. assume if you finish a graphic novel and it's well written and ready to go, like I didn't feel ready to run a staff. I mean, the, oh, the yeah, fight, yeah. yeah, like the fights you see in TV, you know, like if you're a star of your show is in the trailer and they're saying your script is a piece of crap and they're the star of the show and you can't <laughs> replace them and, you know, episode seven out of nowhere, they know what, you know, so there's so many power oh, struggles sure. and 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 I hate personally, in all honesty, I, I this is getting way off the track. But like for me, in all honesty, I never should have been in LA. B 
because I'm really, TV writing's not my greatest passion. I like to write one project by myself, wish it, you know, put it in the water, let it set sail and hope for the best. Like running the same characters day in and day out for like five to seven years, dealing with all that stress and fighting and you know, running like a small company, it's just not really my passion and it's not my skill set because I just want everyone to be happy. So that's what I was going to ask is it like, if have you written in a writer's room then? Oh, yeah. So for that sure. was the thing I was thinking of earlier when I was thinking if there was, had been anything to prepare you for like, all right, now you're writing for 12 hours a day because you have to get this chapter done. Is that at all like the writer's room experience that I've picked up? Because I've never lived in L.A. or, or written yeah. in a writer's room. I know there's aspects of the L.A. world that I will avoid at all costs. Uh, yeah. But the writer's room experience. I, I got to tell you, my writer's room experiences were universally horrible. Yeah, And I don't, I have to think it's gotten better somehow with like, there's been a lot of like kind of in, you know, it gets a lot of, there's a lot of jokes about woke stuff now. And, and I'm sure there's truth to that, but you know, this, this, you can't say anything because everyone's offended stuff. But generally speaking, uh, for me being in a writer's room was literally like, if you could imagine the worst Thanksgiving dinner you've ever been at where <laughs> uncle Joe hates Aunt and this guy's man and like ever imagine if you have 12 seats and imagine the geometry of how many different people can hate each other and how many power struggles are getting on and, and you know this person makes a joke and if you don't know if you should laugh at it because this other person might think that you're on like so there's a tremendous amount of like now again maybe i was in dysfunctional rooms and i have a warped view of this but i do remember my overwhelming feeling of being in writers rooms was this is, I remember laughing to myself thinking, this is making it, I've, I've made it. You know, like there's millions of writers, or whatever, hundreds of thousands of writers probably would kill to be where I'm sitting. And I'm thinking, this is the worst place in the world. Like it just, I had people steal my ideas. I, I mean, in my experience, navigating the pressure, the meanness, and when real money's on the line and you're making really good money and people don't like what you're doing, they, some of the bosses don't have a problem going, I can't believe we're paying you you know, this kind of money to write that shitty joke. And you're like, okay, I was just, you know, I was just trying something. Oh <laughs> yeah. I mean, I had, and, and I just didn't have a, uh, a really funny quick story, but like I'm on one of the shows I was on, I'm probably talking too much, but I don't really care anymore what people think. And one of the guys <laughs> I worked with was Bill Prady who created big bang theory yep. and God, God bless him. He built a billion dollar property with a B and, and he deserves massive credit for that. But when he told me the idea and he's like, I got a genius idea. I'm like, what's your genius idea? And he said, it's three's company, but with two nerds and one hot girl instead. And he said it to me like it was a billion dollar idea. <laughs> and I'm like, who the hell gives a crap about that? What are you talking about? And that just shows my, I'd be the worst Hollywood executive because I would not, I never would have known people would want to watch like people fighting on an island on Survivor or whatever the hell goes on in that show. But anyway, that, but, but that is an important point just to make about Bill, God bless him, was a very intelligent, very driven, very, you know, understood the mechanics of Hollywood and, you know, it wasn't an accident. Um, if I could tell you a really quick story about why I left Hollywood, yeah. I actually was in my, my martial, I was doing karate and um, that always sounds a little bit hokey, but, but it's the greatest thing in the world. And I was, I was getting up in the ranks of my school and I was really into it. And one day there was a guy in the school who I heard made five, and I'm not making this up, $5 million for sold a screenplay. 
and it was it was about to get made and his life had changed and I just happened to be he was new to the school and he was sort of a portly fella and not a talented fighter and it just happened to be a day when the sensei said let's beat those guys up a little bit to show them they're enough sure. they're ready to realize that you know this is not a joke and so I I was really good this guy a good whooping and I got him on the ground and I was kind of rubbing his face a little bit and I'm thinking five million dollars at the time I was out, <laughs> out of work and I'm like rubbing my elbows and it, so I said you know instead of being arrogant and, and and thinking you know why him not me and all this kind of drama I invited him to lunch and and I had lunch with him and I said how did you do it and he was really meticulous and he said look my manager is my best friend and we've known each other since college he said, so we're always in tune with each other. And I decided long ago, he said that I'm the rom-com action guy. So all I will write for the rest of my life is rom-com action, romantic comedy action. So one day it just so happened that a celebrity was looking, I don't want to say what film it is because it's it's meme, because it did horrible actually. It's a piece of absolute dog crap, which <laughs> is so confusing. I mean, it didn't, it didn't make sense, the idea. Yeah. But so he... But he had a business plan and he had a game plan and he worked it. And when a, a celebrity needed a rom-com action, the manager was like, look at this guy. You got to look at this guy. So you know what I mean? And that's when I went home to my wife and I went, I want to go home. I want to go back to Chicago. Yep. I'm done. I just don't, I just don't want to do this. It doesn't make me happy. And I, and that, but that guy loved playing the game and he loved taking the meetings and he, yeah. So Th that's such an interesting part of it because when I've read about, you know, novelists who put out a, a book a year or two books, like John Grisham writes a book and then starts writing the next book when he finishes yeah. the first one. And that right. is bonkers to me because yeah. as much as I love writing and being a writer, that's not all I want to be. Sure. <laughs> and when I, and when I finally let myself say, that's not a bad thing. That doesn't mean you're a failure. That doesn't yeah. mean you are writing incorrectly hitting that point where it's like, you know what? That's not my, that's not my thing. Uh, I'm not really worried about writing, a, a an ongoing monthly comic book because that is a right. shitload of work. And I know right. my anxiety and my depression and just also my, the way that I write doesn't fit in with that. And that's okay. Finding the things that it fits in with, that's been the thing that has let me feel that confidence where it's like, yeah. no, no, I have this thing and, and I, I'm very proud of it. And I would like you to see it because I, I think it's good. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that a million trillion percent. And I have no, you know, again, these people who I was reading about an author, a famous guy, I'm forgetting his name. I feel like James Patterson. Is that it? He has got like an army of writers and he's yep. banging out like a gazillion novels and making a fortune. And he's, he's like a one man company. And, and my friend, we were talking about Anna Shapiro. She says, comparison is death. You know, it's, just doesn't matter. Yes. That's who they are. That's what they do. It's it's just. But um, yeah. For me, the biggest thing, and I'm still figuring this out, and I'm about to turn 55. But like, I do think a ton about my own ego, the purpose of writing. You know, I'm I'm in between projects right now, and I I actually got I'm actually writing a I got hired actually I'm not in between projects I accidentally lied to you, but I'm <laughs> I'm writing something that's that's a little more fun. It's a it's like a sitcom. And a remote a single camera thing. And, but I have another idea that I'm getting really passionate about. But I do think a ton about how to divorce my ego and my self worth from my writing. I don't want to sit down and feel like, like for 30 years, my writing was, you know, to justify my whole existence and all that pressure. It just didn't work. And I really do believe that great writers on some level, 
they already feel valuable. And the thing I tell my students, and, and I see faces look so confused, and this is something I'm fanatic about. These kids today growing up, and all of us, it's the most ranked, judged, you know, credit scores, likes, shares, follows. So much of what you do is external validation. How do you look on social media? You know, you, you made a post and maybe you just wanted to share an honest thought. Well, how many likes did it get? How many people put that little heart thingy on it? How many people retweeted it? And it's really hard on the soul. And so what I was telling, the number one thing, and, and, and I think you're going to, you totally get this, is I tell my kids, you are inherently valuable. And religious people especially get this, you know, because God made you is what religious people would say. But even if not, even if you're not religious, you exist and you're a person and your value has nothing to do with your output. That's a slave. You're a, a, an individual human being. And because interesting things have happened to you and no one's thought or felt or experienced what you felt, you have a right to tell your story and you can craft it well. That is such a better attitude than I am a dirty, worthless, no good piece of dog shit. And if I sell a script, finally that stink will come off me because it doesn't. I, you know, when you meet people who own, I've sat in mansions of gazillionaires, successful writers, and they know deep down the script wasn't really theirs or it wasn't really good. And they're not happy. It doesn't, it doesn't, or they, or they wrote the thing and it is good, but their soul is like rotten. And, and I'm very big in my book about you, you got to write from a pure place and a healthy place and that you're here on this earth for such a brief time overall. And to live it sitting in your desk alone is hard enough, but to do it when you're hating yourself, it's just, just not, just not a good way to live. Man, all, I, all of that hits me really, really hard because <laughs> very recently, hard even, point lessons. Yeah. I, I've been struggling with that. Like, why do I give a shit? How many people like yeah. this post? Why, like, why <laughs> do I give a shit if, if yeah. somebody saw this or shared it? Like I obviously want people to hear this show and share this show, but my value is not equated with how many people share it or, or hear yeah. it or like the, that worry, especially with writing, because ever since I knew that I was going to be a writer, I yeah. was probably 17 or 16 where I was like, yeah. okay, I'm going to write. That's the thing. It makes yeah. me feel amazing. There yeah. has been an, an almost this like cloud of guilt. That's like, <laughs> Hey, you're not writing. Right. Why are you doing this thing? You could be writing. And there are times when that's important and true. Yes. But there, I've also used it against myself so much in the past and I fight it now still. And I, I'm almost 40, so I'm a little bit better yeah. at it now. You're a kid. Yeah. <laughs> right. I've got, you know, there's, I've got plenty of years of guilt left to fight against. Yeah. No, that that's all. Yeah. And it's true. And I don't want to come off as like some trite Tony Robbins kind of guy. Cause it's, this is hard. And it, it really is in these, all these battles and never knowing if you're doing great work or just fooling yourself and everywhere in between is those are all real and they're hard and they're, and without a doubt, and you have it, obviously you have it in spades, but it's like, you, you gotta love it. I mean, you gotta love doing the work, fighting the fight. And, uh, but, but this thing we're in right now, like for me, I, I, I'm kind of an evangelist these days. I, I'd quit 
all social media. Like I noticed, like, I saw your Twitter was yeah. gone. <laughs> yeah, I know. I feel bad because it's in my book, but like, I didn't like the guy on, I was on social media. Like I'm always trying to get attention. I would say, sometimes I'd tweet something I thought was a really interesting observation of, and it would get like no likes, but you know, it encourages being snarky, being, you know, on trend or, and I, I just, I, for me, I realized that I think this is a big worry for writers and I feel really strongly about this. Maybe I'm just older and I didn't grow up with it in my DNA the way my daughter does. She, I think she does all this stuff. But um, I, I really think that the, like the muscle of being a writer, you know, like how you think about it, how it literally feels when you're writing and how your thought process works and how your patterns work. Uh, for me, social media is a cancer for that. It's a, it encourages thoughtlessness. It encourages external validation. It encourages neediness. It encourages wanting to have ego. And for me, those are all things I just can't afford. Like I, and, and it pulls you in a million directions. You, you know, like, to be honest, I don't really know too much about the last shooting in San Francisco or whatever that was. I obviously I feel horrible for those people and wish them great, their families, great healing. But like, I don't really need to know about that. And, and, and not to mention 50 other terrible things. Yeah. You know, that it's so interesting. I want to control it. Earlier we were talking about the thing you say in your book about that's not a story. That's just some shit that happens. Yeah. Yeah. One of the notes that I wrote down as I was reading through and like marking, marking the book up and stuff was the internet is filled with this. The internet is filled with things that are just shit happening. And I started to notice that my writing would reflect me in like taking in things that were quote unquote stories and being like, well, that's not a story. Like I, I'm not, that's not a story that I'm reading. It's a thing that happened. And right. what I'm trying to to do and create is, is being affected by me consuming these, these things and that external validation and the idea of someone liking a link to my writing is not the same as somebody reading my writing and being affected by it. Oh, yeah. Oh, man, no. And you know what's funny? It, I, I've been working on a graphic for my students lately that I really like. And it's it's there's a book called Thinking in Systems um, by a woman named, I think, Danella Meadows. And it's a great book about how important it is to never think about any one thing, you know, apart from all the other things that influence it. And I was trying to design a graphic that basically took a writer and used the metaphor of a factory, you know, and a factory has inputs, you know, if it's a bread factory, it has whatever yeast and whatever the heck else, water, whatever whatever else goes into the bread. Then all that input goes into the factory and it's converted to bread. You know, they they have to shape it, they have to bake it, and then it's got to get processed onto the trucks. So it was a way of looking at, like, it's a way of visualizing your entire process. And I started thinking about, well, what are the inputs of being a writer? You know, and obviously you, you study, we all do, study the craft. But also for me, it's huge, like, what place do I go to get inspiration? And, you know, going to nature or going to... Lately, I've been making a point to get up and look at the sunrise. I happen to live near the lake. And you see the sunrise come over the lake, and it's just so awesome. And, like, your, your soul just comes alive when you see that. Yeah, or going to an art museum and spending the day there or spending time with your favorite, you know, your graphic artist. And, I mean, uh, graphic, you're a graphic novelist. Is yeah. That, 
the way we yeah. say it. Um, okay, is is you know a comic book writer is is you know when you read the guys and the writers that you love the most, it it does something you know and and so analyzing that press, but the inputs are so important. Like and when I was in, no one talked to us about that. I have two degrees in writing. Nobody talked to us about that. How, what do you do to get motivated? What do you, like I learned a lot about you know fundamentals and principles, but rarely do we talk about where do you go to get that deep seated inspiration so that you know again the principles are kind of I, I kind of equate the principles of writing with like the body if you were making like a Frankenstein, but let's pretend it's a handsome, <laughs> successful <laughs> Frankenstein. Yeah. But like you know you put the body parts together, but it doesn't have any life in in and of itself. It's just creating, you know, there's that great shot in the old Frankenstein movie where he's like up on the, at the top of the um, castle and like the lightning strikes and, you know, to get that lightning strike, it, t- it, it takes work. So yeah, um, that was a bit of a ramble. No, I, I agree. And it's funny, uh, Stephen King in his book on writing, he yeah. says, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I book. love it. It's one of my favorites. Uh, yeah. You have to read a lot yeah. and you have to write a lot. Uh huh. Those are two yeah. real straightforward things. <laughs> and when people say they don't do one or the other, it's like, I don't really know what your plan is, <laughs> but like, you've got to, you have to do those things. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up Stephen King because he's, you know, I, it's funny. I'm not a fanatic fan of all his writing the way some people are. I've only read a couple of novels, but I have so much, like he is such a God of, of yeah. writing. I mean, that guy's written like what, like 150 novels. Every one of them is like a it's bestseller. so like, funny. It's unbelievable. I was a real snobby little 18 year old. And I was like, I'm not going to read Stephen yeah. King. Uh, yeah. He's the, you know, the bestseller. And I was working at a video store at the time and at the front yeah. counter, you know, no one's there half, half the day. So you can do whatever you want. And then one of my friends came in and he was like, you never read Stephen King. And I was like, no, I don't read Stephen King. And he said, you should read the <laughs> long walk. And I was like, I've never even heard of that one. So originally published as a Richard Bachman book, I read it literally after I read yeah. The Long Walk, I bought 18 Stephen King books. <laughs> and, oh, wow. I, you know, yeah. it's weird because I also wouldn't describe myself as like a fanatic of him, but I, I right. bought it. I bought his newest book. I don't buy all of his stuff if it doesn't sound interesting to me because he sure. writes so much that even a genius like him, like he wrote this book called Cell. I think it's horrible about like killer cell phones. Okay. Oh, man, I hated it. <laughs> Awful. Okay. But. Right. When he hits like uh, eleven twenty two sixty three, that book yeah. just about knocked yeah, that, my ass dead. <laughs> like it's bonkers. But his yeah. his that thing, you know, read a lot, write a lot. It, those very two simple things that they feed into each other so so beautifully. Absolutely. And go well, ahead. Sorry to interrupt, but basically. But also he says something interesting. I think if I read him correctly, he really isn't doing it for some purpose. You know what I mean? He's doing it because he really, really loves yeah. to do it. And obviously a byproduct is you're going to sure. get better at it. But one of one of the biggest things about Stephen King to me is, and I'm glad this came up because it's such an important part of my book and my whole like method of how I teach writing is – Every great writer I've studied, every single one, and if you can bring me one that doesn't fit this, I will be thrilled because it'll be amazing. But I, there's no great writer that doesn't have a perfect alignment between who they are, what they love, where they're from, and like their genre. You know what I mean? Like, like it's just like he is from Maine. 
He is loves horror. He loves fifties like robots and monsters and all that stuff. And you know, like how many of his stories are set in like Gary Maine? Like the man is so, and he's a strange by his own admission. I'm sure he's a strange, dark yep. kind of character. And there's such a perfect alignment. Like you read it, and it's like that's there. It is clearly his love and his boyhood. But yeah, but I think that's hard for a lot of people because that's why I was getting to the thing before about. If you like, he has to, on some level, in my opinion, value himself highly in that he's always writing about the things that he loves. And I think my friends I've seen over the years and my own self at my darker moments, when you get misaligned, that's when trouble starts. When you start thinking you're going to write something because you think it's going to sell or you have some idea that you think is genius, but it's not. Like my favorite story, and it's really sad, but I had a friend who told me once, he was like 43 at the time, and his TV career was in the crapper. And he said, Dan, I figured it out. I'm going to write young adult fiction for girls. And I was like, but but you don't yeah, know why? anything about that. You're, you're not, yeah, you, it's, you've never talked to me about that before. It's not your passion. He said, yeah, but trust me, that's what sells. And it was just the saddest moment. I was like, oh my God. And I, and last time I saw him, he was like getting interviewed by like a 12 year old girl's blog. And it wasn't I, good. I had almost like, the exact same situation. I, I, I knew someone, uh, who had started successfully publishing and was just writing. That was the only thing. And no, no day job, no side hustle, nothing like that was just writing novels. Right. And I was like, Hey, how'd you, how'd you end up doing the thing? Like, give me some, some tips. Tell me what's going on. And he said, <laughs> I started writing romance under a pseudonym and publishing on okay. Kindle direct for Amazon. And right. I write the exact same plot over and over. I change a few things. You pick a, an author's name. That's two, two letters and a last name. And then, uh, you put, a the, the same kind of cover on it and it sells. And I was like, but you're still writing your, your own stuff outside of that. Right. Because this person loved sci-fi yeah. and he said, no, why would I do that? No one's reading it. And I, le legitimately, I felt like I could die. <laughs> just think, just thinking about that. I was like, <laughs> oh man, that, that is, I was working at a, a veterinarian's office at the time. I was like, that yeah. sounds like soul death to me yeah that that's a really important point is that and and la is filled with this kind of character not that that guy's more successful than a lot of writers <laughs> but like the thing that makes me laugh is i actually got robbed in a terrible business deal a yeah. long time ago and i made it a point to really really study money because so much of what writers think is well, it doesn't matter how much money I make for, you know, because I'm going to make so much money when I hit it that I'll be fine. And that's not true for 99% right. of writers. But but what what's really strange is, again, my biggest thing that I hope listeners take from this talk is that when you separate your soul from your money, it it's just such a better way to live. But also from an objective point of view, like anyone who does writing, like for money, like you're going to spend your time in this world in a room by yourself. I remember one time my daughter came in when I was working, I was in the basement and we had our cat litter boxes in the laundry room. And it was just an unpleasant Chicago humid day. And I remember I was working on something. And I remember saying to my daughter, 
one day this could all be yours. <laughs> but yeah, but the funny thing is like the more I learned about the stock market, learned about marketing and like there are so many better ways to make money. Like if you yeah. want to make money. So, but, but what happens is so many writers is they develop an identity as a writer. And I'm sure yep. I do this too. And they, they cling to it. And I met guys that I one time was having dinner with these two guys who were like 45 and they had, they said to me, Hey, do you know how you get an agent? And I couldn't help it. I get, you get grumpy in your old age. I was like, how could you ask me that? Are you a jackass? <laughs> like, how could you, you're fit, you're 45 years old. You've probably been writing for 20 years yep. and you have no agent. How about the fact that you're not a writer for real? You're not a, or you're not, I mean, people get mad at me for saying these kind of cracks, but like, I know, I understand, of course, someone writes with a pure heart and is writing, whether or not they're sure. successful or not, they're, God bless them. But there are so many people who develop this identity as a writer and they will, and they will not let go of it. And, and when you're in LA, you really feel that energy everywhere you go. And everyone in LA is an inch away from the big break. You know, yep. as soon as a friend who knows Tom Cruise, who's Tom Cruise's barber's uncle's accountant, gets the script, he's going to get it right to Tom Cruise, and then, they, then they're going to be on easy street. And it's just sad. Like, And I was, you know, sort of becoming that at some point where I'm like, I don't like, this is just a nasty-ass feeling. And you don't need it nowadays. The thing is, you write a graphic novel, you know, you guys also, you, you got you graphic novel guys, you can really self-publish at a high level now. The big thing for me, um, and sort of connecting back to the to the Stephen King thing, and and just the the idea of someone writing, even though they're they're not feeling passionate about it, or they think it's going to make them money. Mm-hmm. There's nothing easier in the world than not writing. <laughs> like even if, even the people who are great at it, and it comes easy to them, it's easier to just not write. Yeah, because. Writing is hard. And that's one of the things that I, I love about your book is it takes that seriously, but not too seriously. Yeah. And helps you navigate the the things that you might struggle with because you don't you don't have to write uh-huh. if, if you don't want to or don't feel like like hearing the the person that I knew talk about writing something just because it was selling and, and just to get money and I and and not writing the thing that I knew he loved. Yeah. I was like, oh man, that makes me feel bad. And, and I wasn't even the person doing it, but it, it just made me feel like I, I, if I got to that point, I had lost. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's funny. I have two things popped in my mind is maybe it's a good place to end. Cause I think it's really good advice for writers is, have you ever read the war of art by Stephen Pressfield? No, you mentioned it in the book and, and I immediately, uh, made a mental note about it well what he talks about in that book it's a little bit a little bit foo-foo but like the he talks about the concept of resistance you know and the yeah. idea that whenever you try to do something especially right and the more you care about the project the more genuinely important the project is to you it's almost like an actual force rises up in the universe against you and it'll make you convinced that Either it's not going to be worth it or it'll be really crafty. You know, it'll say something like, you know, you really should get to the gym today. You got to get healthy. Or it'll say, you know, hey, you know, you haven't made money. You know, why don't you clean the garage? In in fact, I thought a funny book to write one time would be like, how to not write your way to your dreams because I'll do anything other than write. Best shape I ever got in my life was when I put a workout bench next to my desk 
So when I was writing, I'm like, you know, a set of heavy bench pressing is just what I need to be doing now. But so, so War of Art is a great book that talks about how, that the, it's such a triumph to just overcome that feeling and, and just start typing, even if you just type blah, 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 blah. And then yeah. you get going. And then another book I really love was called Getting Things Done, which is just a productivity book. But one of the concepts in that book, and I'm, I think this is his, is called Next Action. And so when you're working on something that's a project, which is really a ton of actions, like writing a screenplay or writing a novel, it's, you're not going to do it in one sitting. So you're always right. – so he said the way to stay sane is just always focused on the next action you can take. So you, you can always – like if you say to any writer, do you think you could write one good line of dialogue? Could you write one well-written sentence? And I think most would go, yeah, well, hell yeah. Well – that's all you do, you know. There you that, go. Yeah. So anyway, do it over and over. that's my my self helpy finale. Well, legitimately, as I started reading your book, I'm you know I'm writing several projects right now, and one yeah. of them I, I'm hoping will turn out to be a novel. And sure. I read a few of your principles and could see my novel slotting in, and and could see the characters moving, and started to be able to conceptualize it better. And I absolutely, if somebody was going to ask me, Hey, what should I read? If I want to read about writing, I would tell them three books, Bird by Bird, uh, by Anne Lamott. Great book. On Writing by Stephen King. Love it. And this one. Oh man, that's a good company. That is gonna, I'm going to walk around feeling real cocky, but no, that is a, that's a great company. Thank you so much. And, uh, I appreciate it. That was my chat with Daniel Joshua Rubin. Make sure you go to DanielJoshuaRubin.com and you can also go to StoryPrinciples.com and check out the book, 27 Essential Principles of Story. I really, really do love the book. I've reread sections of it since I finished reading it the first time and since Daniel and I chatted. He and I briefly chatted a little bit about even having him come back on the show so that we can dive into some of the principles and, and go over them a little bit more really just because I love them. I, I I do think that they've helped me look at some of the stories that I'm currently working on in, in a brand new light and kind of reoriented my brain for, for how I'm going to start writing some of my stories because he puts experts and how they wrote a story. He breaks it down. He talked about it a little bit in the interview with Finding Nemo and The Godfather and South Park and, and some other stuff like that. He does that in the in the book where he says, how did an expert do it? And then he goes through the story and says, okay, I presented this principle to you. Here's exactly how an expert did it and how that story worked. Breaking Bad is one of them. Uh, the book's filled with those kinds of things. You don't have to read those sections. I did skip one because I haven't seen the TV show he was talking about yet. It's called The Night Of. But I know it's written by people that I also consider experts, and it's also written well and was received very well. So it's there for good reason. I do love the book. Check it out. See what you think about it. Let me know what you think about it. Go to my website, austinrwilson.com. Follow me on Twitter, Austin R. Wilson, Ledger underscore books. Do all that stuff that I mentioned at the beginning of the show. And please, please, please tell other people about the show. Anyone who writes, anyone who's thinking about writing, spread the word. I want as many people to hear the chats as possible because I love talking about this stuff and I love it when people hear it. So I'm going to record another interview this coming Friday. Uh, so yeah, that'll be three interviews in the month of February. Uh, been a pretty busy month and more on the way. See you then.